0: Previously, on Star Wars Beyond the Films, what the heck is going on? Oh my god, the artwork is terrible! A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're
1: listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films. The
0: official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force.
1: That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 135 of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, 2nd Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zune, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Earlman, and with me, like the trouble that follows the Solo family through time, the EU guru himself, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P.
0: Butler. Hey, everybody. Previously, on Star Wars Beyond the Films. What the heck is going on?
1: Oh my god, the
0: artwork is terrible! Yeah, I think you're now caught up on where we are for this arc. <laughs> the black! The black! Quick, smudge it! Smudge it around! Mush it! Mush it! Although, uh, it's funny you should you should mention that. I just finished up, and I put a video of it up on uh, YouTube and the Facebook page and everything, I just finished up making a custom game board for the X-Wing game. My table isn't big enough, it's it's long enough, but it's not wide enough for a three feet by three feet play surface, which is what you're supposed to use for X-Wing. So I took it upon myself, like an idiot, because it was really a pain in the butt process, to go out and buy some fiberboard, some MDF as it's called, paint it black, then put a clear coat over it using its spray paint black spray paint clear coat, and use a brush to put in some detail like an X-Wing logo and stuff on it to make myself a nice playing surface, That's the right size for when I were to play uh, the X-Wing stuff, and I think back to how much of a pain in the butt it was using spray paint and spray coating to come up with any kind of feeling of uniformity to the color and to the coating on that board using the spray paint, and makes me wonder if this entire arc that we're covering this time and last time was painted in spray paint. Because it really does have that sort of everything runs together, it's mushy. There will be a point in this issue where they give up on details entirely and do several panels just in silhouette. And you probably didn't notice them the first time reading them because it all almost feels like silhouette. Um, <laughs> one of the times in which we see a Star Wars comic story where the artwork really drags down the arc itself. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it highly uplifts, sometimes it hurts the series a little. But as we said last time with Star Wars Legacy Volume 2, it is like they listened to the concerns and the complaints about the dark, muddy style of artwork from the first arc and said, oh, yeah, and decided to do one step up and double down and give us even more muddy. Thankfully, though, the stuff that happens in the part we're going to talk about this time does have some important repercussions later. So it does wind up becoming somewhat more of an impactful story, even if at the time reading it, you're like, yeah, but of course. That begs the question, what are we covering that I'm talking about?
1: Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode... We pick up where we left off last episode with Star Wars Legacy Volume 2, Issues 6 through 10, Outcasts of the Broken Ring. Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentences of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films.
0: So we left off in the middle of issue number eight of Star Wars Legacy Volume 2. This is the midpoint approximately, because we are on the page where the staples are, of the five-issue arc outcasts of the broken ring. When last we saw our heroes, Anya Solo and Jao Assam had basically disobeyed Zhao's orders to stay on Coruscant and decided to go after Darth Red themselves. They went to the planet Nalid. Uh, where they chase down a guy named Dibin, who was the henchman working with Red back in the previous arc. They save him, in theory, from a death sentence only to wind up getting him killed anyway, and one of the guards that's chasing them name drops the fact that apparently somebody had wanted to take Dibin back to Dak, Mon Calamari, slash Mon Cala, whatever they're calling it this week. And by the way, may I say, all that idea of unifying terminology is kind of out the window because we know that Lucas came in and called it Mon Cala. New name for the species, new name for the planet. So we figure that's the official story group canon name for it, right? No. Uh, in the newest short story for Insider, 1,000 Levels Down, would have been ironic if they called it 1,000 Stories Down because it could have been thought of as BAM what they did to the <laughs> Legends continuity. But in that story, the species is mentioned as... Moncalamari. So, so much for unified terminology so far, and we haven't even got the first novel yet for the new story group canon, but I suppose I digress. So they're on their way to Dax slash Moncala slash Moncalamari to figure out what the heck is going on. We last saw them arriving in their ship that they stole, winding up being accosted by people up in the atmosphere, trying to take them prisoner, thinking, what the heck is going on? So they are now going to infiltrate the ring, that is the orbital shipyards that have been damaged heavily. The ring has been broken, but it is still there. Again, of course, on the planet itself, it's all poison water and such because of what happened back in Legacy Volume 1. That is, the previous series, not the previous trade paperback. Meanwhile, Sauk has decided to hook up with AG-37 as an engineer aboard his freighter. They're off doing missions on their own, but they've had a conversation about DAC and the fact that the shipyards are still active, albeit broken. So you get the sense that they could be heading that way as well. We've also had a scene in which Garstasi, one of the three members of the Triumvirate, has talked with a constituent about problems of shipping near Dak. So it's all kind of pointing towards Dak at this point, the broken ring of the title, Outcasts of the Broken Ring. And for whatever reason, we won't know until the next arc, all of a sudden, Anya Solo and the government don't just want to go after Jao Assam because he's deserted, for which the penalty is death, but they also want... Anya brought into custody. They were nice to her when they met her previously. All of a sudden that tenor, of that relationship has changed. We won't know why for a few issues yet. So we pick up with them infiltrating the Broken Ring. First thing they wind up doing that is Zhao and Anya is run into, and I had to look up the names because again they don't say the names enough in the story for us to know who the heck these people are most of the time. Jumping between issues, and there will be characters in this that don't get named, barely, or don't get named at all. Just like the arc in the issues, as Mark mentioned last time, they meet Tikkun and Lewin. Tikkun and Lewin are, respectively, a Quorin and a Mon Calamari. A purple Mon Calamari, or that could just be because the art sucks who basically accost them as they arrive, and very quickly, like, whoa, 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 you know, we're, we're not your enemy. You know what this is? Holding up the lightsaber, I'm an Imperial Knight, what the heck is going on here? And very quickly it becomes a four-person team instead of two. Lewin and Tikken join them, and they learn basically that a Sith, they thought it was Darth Red, is building a fleet. People have been coming back to DAC with all these stories that life is going on on the shipyard, so come back home and everything. And instead, they're being captured and forced into being a slave labor force to build ships for some Sith. We get a conversation in which they lay out those details, but that's essentially the gist of the whole deal. But in dealing with a couple of ruffians, uh, security ruffians, Jow manages to pull out his lightsaber and... He stops them and gets them away, but in doing so, it draws attention to him, and they wind up running afoul of the Sith, who is there. Now, this Sith, Mark, just by looking at him, (laughs) Twi'lek? I think he's supposed to be a Twi'lek. He looks more kind of like a Sith goat guy. Yeah,
1: I kind of think, like, what would have happened if Aliyah Sakura, and Saucy Tin would have had a kid? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very odd the way that he's drawn. He's drawn with his head tails, but his head tails don't lay down over his shoulders or anything. He's got them pulled back. Again, It looks like he's got horns of some kind, but they're not. Apparently he is supposed to be a Twi'lek. We don't know his name at this point, but we'll find it out later. And he's like, you know, Red? You think I'm working with Darth Red?" You know, it's like, screw that, he was idiotic, he's dumb, I'm doing my own thing here, we've sent emissaries to make direct appeals to see how your pitiful government would react to all of this. They're not interested in Dak, which means I shouldn't be wasting my time fighting you when there's an easier way, and he just flips a very interesting and conveniently set up trapdoor. A trapdoor that not only opens underneath them and sends all four of our characters plummeting down through the trapdoor, they slide through a tube kind of thing, almost like Luke after dropping on purpose on Cloud City, followed, by the way, by the little unnamed still communications droid flying after them, and it dumps them into an escape pod, which then gets launched down into the poisoned sea of Dak. Now, if it sounds like, wow, that's a whole lot of stuff, that's an interesting scene, it's not, that's pretty much the entire bulk of the rest of the issue, but it's interesting to find that, oh, it's not even Darth Red that they've run into. It's crazy devil-looking Sith without a name. But it ends with our characters certainly in a great deal of peril as they're in an escape pod inside the Dak Waters. A nice bit of peril that actually let me think, whoa, I wonder how they're going to get out of this one at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Mark, what did you think of this issue? It seems like things happen fairly quickly in the latter half of this issue, but it does introduce a new Sith and give us more peril.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- this issue, I think from here, moving forward with the arc is where I start to enjoy things. I mean, you know, when you look at this one issue by itself, it's like, oh, well, not much really happened here. But I think that for the story of Legacy Volume 2, this issue is the kind of storytelling I would rather have. It's like, while a lot of events didn't happen, there was a lot more going on in the images to kind of add to it. Like, one of the first things, you know, we get is that that sense of serenity, the movie Serenity when they go and they're looking for Miranda and they go through and the Reavers attack them. Like there's that whole scene when the pirates are locked, locking onto their ship and stuff totally brought that t- to mind. Uh, You know, and then they're sneaking around on, on the uh, thing, trying to find out what's going on. And they discover all the other stuff. I-, I love where the plot's going at this point. I'm like, okay, this is moving things on almost to a point where, Last issue, like, they could have, instead of happened to have Anya look at an Imperial wanted database and recognize a guy who looks exactly like everyone else of his species and then go to that planet for him not to say anything, to have one of the other guys say Dak, like, if they could have found another way to get the word Dak to these guys, it would have made more sense. I mean, I feel like the last issue was kind of like a, you know, roller coaster ride that we didn't need to go on to get here. Like, they could have done it differently. Uh, but moving into it and stuff, we get to that weird Twilight guy. Yeah, I, he was, he definitely had that whole goat like appendices going on the back of his head. But I like where we're at with the plot. This is a, a pl- plot point that I'm like, okay, I can get where we're at. This was from Legacy Volume One. We got all the action with Dak. We, you know, I know that the sea's tainted. I know Salk's over here. I like that we're getting to that point again. So it's on the right pace. I tripped and stumbled a couple times getting there, but I'm here now, and and I've got the happy face and moving forward and all that. The dark styles of everything at this point don't bother me too much. But what does kind of have me stopping and questioning is what's going on with that probe droid. I mean, is he always been following them around or has he just happened to show up when they need him most and follows them everywhere and nobody seems to care. Like, Hey, there's a random droid following that group of people that we just sent down that tube. I, you know, again, convenience factor, it works out, but I like the way that when it's all said and done, that hopeless feeling, you know, I mean, Anya says it, oh, no, you know, when they sink into the water and you see the bones and stuff of everything that's there. I mean, th- th- it's toxic, you know, and they don't even know how deep this escape pod can get. So as we're moving into the next issue, that sense of dread moving forward is cool. But staying with the Sith, the fact that that Sith knew Darth Red's name, uh, he I mean, he even makes a comment about it. He, he says something along the lines of Red. You came all this way looking for some scum apprentice? He's worth less than his idiotic master was. So, you know, this Sith and and I would kind of get the impression from the first issue of this arc that the other Sith, they know of Darth Red whether they know what he's you know now that he's grandstanding and all that stuff but i mean i got the feeling that you know he was at least a member of the order enough that the other siths knew of him and his master just by name and maybe that was also because of what he did in the beginning of the first arc of the legacy volume two you know i mean he brought himself to such public notice that maybe that was why they know of him but i got the feeling of familiarity there with the name that they knew enough about him to you know tie him in and oh we don't care about that guy he's just scum you know which which is kind of cool too because it's like the classic villain like you know you think he's bad well i'm better
0: because he's nothing to me
1: like oh okay and you got really cool sith tattoos so that must mean you're pretty evil
0: the sith have doubled down just like dark horse with the artwork so that brings us into issue number four of this which is issue number nine overall in the series You might be thinking, wait a second, they're in an escape pod. Why don't they just fire off the thrusters and fly the heck out of there? We are very quickly told they can't do that because they had been stripped out as part of building the fleet. The escape pods were basically cannibalized in order to do that. So there is a reason why they are stuck down there. We also get a name for the Sith Lord. At some point in this issue, you get a point where, I believe it's Jow, refers to Darth Luft. Nowhere in the story is he ever told the name of the Sith. He just knows, all of a sudden, it's Darth Luft. Where did he find out? Probably the same place that we found out. He read the recap of the previous story, the previous issue. The second paragraph says, Led to the planet Dak in their pursuit of Red. Jow and Anya instead discovered that another Sith, hyphen, Darth Luft, hyphen, and his criminal syndicate are enslaving blah blah blah. Oh! That's his name! Would have been nice to get it within the story, either in the previous issue when he introduced himself, or to have one of the other characters tell Zhao who it is. Because unless Zhao supposedly recognizes this guy on sight, it makes no sense for him all of a sudden to know the character's name in this issue. Again, unless he's reading the comics about his own life. Unless he's basically pulling a space balls <laughs> and he's checking out the story based on his life on TV, or in this case, on his bookshelf.
1: Maybe he just happens to have a special Force ability where he's able to see the summaries of the single issues.
0: There you go, exactly. Or he hears the narration, you know, it's like the, the Clone Wars, you know, <laughs> a galaxy torn by war. So as they're down there inside the water, he's, you know, having a Force nap or something, and in his vision he hears, Determined to follow Imperial Knight Chow vision of the future, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Maybe he even gets some music going on underneath it. Um, <laughs> turns out it's very convenient that the communications droid that seemed to appear out of nowhere, followed them down into the escape pod because they're able to use its antenna, modified for the depth, apparently, to send out a distress signal for them, which has apparently been picked up by and AG-37. Last time we saw them, they were talking about DAC. Now they're racing for DAC, apparently because they got the signal. Uh, Oh, see, I
1: assumed it was it was Sock's. You know, I want to go home so bad, you know, like when, well, OK, you might not be able to relate to this, but some of the beyonders out there, when you go on a family trip with your kids and you're in that last like five miles to home mm-hmm. and everything is obvious and the kids are like, oh,
0: we're almost there, we're almost there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's like me going to visit my hometown, my hometown of Evansville, Indiana. To get there, I have to cross through Henderson, Kentucky, but right before Henderson, you've got miles and miles of just nothing. And you're like, oh, my God, this must end. And then you get into Evansville, which is nicknamed Stoplight City for a reason. (laughs) And you've been driving this entire time on interstates where everybody's going like 70, 80, 90 miles per hour. And you get to Evansville and it's like, okay, we're all going to go like between 50 and 60. And don't worry, that's actually safer to drive because the highways have been patched in such a way that it feels like you're driving through downtown Baghdad. It's bad. But anyways, it, I would buy into that, and that's what I first thought was this, you know, hurry, come on, come on, come on, faster, Salk is saying as they arrive, and I'm just thinking, man, he's kind of childish, isn't he? But then AG says at the bottom of the page, Salk, the comm droid signal seems to be coming from beneath the surface. Mm. So apparently they've gotten the signal, because before that there is no mention whatsoever of a comm droid to be a reason for them to go to DAC. We don't even know they're going to DAC, just that they were talking about it. But they show up, and in a scene that, I don't know, it's action-packed in a sense, but to me it is reminiscent of the ridiculousness of, hey, let's hide the Enterprise in Star Trek Into Darkness under the ocean for some damn reason. They take A.G.'s ship, which is meant for space and landing in atmosphere, and apparently it's also watertight. You'd think it would have to be because it's you know tight to space and everything, tight to vacuum. But they just dive the ship into the ocean and go down and use the ship and its grappling arms and stuff uh, for salvage to pull aboard the escape pod and save the folks who were in the escape pod. That just for some reason, I mean, logically, I guess it should make sense because of the whole airtight, watertight thing and whatnot. But for some reason, it just rang wrong to me the idea of a space-going freighter just... Diving down into the poison water to go pick up their buddies, it just seemed wrong to me. I don't think there is anything wrong with it, but the feel of it didn't (laughs) feel right, probably because of how much criticism we've given other things like Star Trek Into Darkness about, hey, let's take this starship and just dump them into the ocean. Don't worry, it'll be okay.
1: Well, remember, uh, Karen Travis did something similar with Clan Scarada. They had that one ship that was specifically designed to do both of that. And that was a a whole paragraph or two basically talking about the fact that it was a specially designed ship and it had all these special abilities. I mean – almost in this regard you could kind of more buy it if it was you know sulk ship versus ig ship you're like oh it's set up to go in okay yeah but yeah i mean i i too had the same thing like maybe if they would just had you know a quick comment like hey this thing is rated to the something something pressure right <laughs> you know, so we can go underneath the water like i don't know but can i just say real quick a quick note to marvel in the year 2015. Please look at what Dark Horse has been doing, and don't follow suit. I don't want to have to be like, oh yeah, and all this stuff happened off the page, and that's how we got from here to there. And I know the Clone Wars did it with a couple episodes, like, hey, Obi Wan and Anakin didn't drink the alcohol drink, but then there's suddenly drugs. So hey, here's a comic with them telling you how. No, let's not do that. Okay, put it on the page. You know, let let's have it all there. I don't want to have to be like, wait, when did they find this out? Oh, between issues. Oh, okay. I mean, granted, yeah, I guess you know with with the. IG saying, you know, oh, the Comdroid signal seems to be coming from beneath the ocean surface. Uh, yeah, that, that did fill me in, but there was that momentary loss again.
0: Well, they do it again very soon, and it almost seems like they're making fun of themselves for doing it, because we do take a moment to step away to a scene where Garstazi and Yaltaval are both bringing the situation on Dak to the attention of the other members of the Triumvirate, but Marasia isn't willing to send resources to do anything about it, because they've got... Other things they gotta deal with, the Mon Calamari and the Coron are scattered throughout the galaxy, it's not like there's a cause really to take up. Just not gonna do anything about Dax. She's really kind of playing it safe here, which sets up a way for Garstazi to eventually disobey his own instructions and do the same thing. Kind of like what Zhao did and everything. But after we get that, we're not gonna go help them, which makes you sit and back and think, yeah, they're gonna find a way to go help them anyway, we get a conversation as everybody's reunited aboard AG's ship. In which, because they had to go up against those pirates, those evildoers, and almost get captured as Zhao and Anya arrived in the system, she asks A.G. and Sauk, but how did you get past the pirates? To which A.G. says, I dispatched them. And Salk continues, he did. It was impressive. It's another one of these, you didn't want to show us that? Maybe it wasn't necessary to the tale, but it's almost like they're poking fun at their own, we're not going to do things actually on the page, we're just going to skip certain segments of the storytelling there. Just, I don't know, it sort of was a, did you run out of page space? Should you have maybe spent less time chasing after Dybin in one of the previous issues when he was just going to fall to his death anyway? What's the deal? But they're all back, and they come up with a plan. Apparently, Tikin has a son, Tillin, who's back on the ring. So there is no intention among any of these characters, even these two enslaved characters who are now free, to simply leave. They're going to do something to try to liberate these people. Zhao is basically going to go with uh, the slaves back onto the station uh, so they can help him find a way to take out Darth, apparently, left. Whereas A.G. and Anya are going to stick around in the ship, they're going to make it their goal, basically, to basically sort of provide cover to everyone from space at this point, which, you know, it kind of makes sense because she's not a Jedi. She shouldn't be going into battle like that. That's really sort of Jow's job to do. But you get the beginning of sort of this, you know, we sit back and say, well, was this all kind of a red herring? In a sense, I mean, Daivin was supposed to be going back to Dax, so Mm -hmm. we assume that this is where Red is, but if Red's not there, then what are they even doing here? Is this just a way to give us a one-off story that supposedly ties into the rest, but it was just filler? And Zhao says, Red and Luff must be stopped. Cut off the head and the body will die. And Anya objects. You know, Zhao, was lying. Red isn't here. To which he replies, It's impossible that we were led here by coincidence. Yeah, it was kind of coincidental that they happened to name drop Dak, but we covered that in the previous issue. Red is behind all of this. I can feel it. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So there's sort of this sense that we're hoping that Zhao isn't just blinded by that vision of his and wanting to take down Red, that there really is a connection to Red. But so far, we haven't seen it.
1: And he is blind because, I mean, even the phrase he says, love and ref must be stopped, cut off the head and the body will die. Um, hello, you took the head off already with Darth Krayt. The body is still kicking your butt.
0: Yeah. And speaking of kicking butt, Garstazi visits Yalta Val, whose complexion has gone back to more Persian, apparently, and they decide, you know, uh, all these trainees that you're training here, Master Val, uh, they would make a decent fighting force. Maybe they need a little uh, field training mission. And... Basically, they're going to go to Dak and try to help the situation there against orders, against, uh, uh well, not really orders, I guess Fel can't order Garstazi around because uh, they're part of a triumvirate, but against what Yalta Val's orders would have been and against the wishes of Empress Fel, they're going to go try to help under the guise of this being essentially a training mission. You knew they were going to have some way to help based on the conversation we saw earlier, just kind of where the story was obviously going. As for Jal, he gets aboard. There winds up being a big, uh, basically he's attacking the Sith, he's trying to get the slaves to revolt, and many of them do, trying to arm the slaves. Meanwhile, there's basically uh, ships loyal to Luff that are going in and attacking A.G.'s ship. So you've got Anya and A.G. basically about to be obliterated, only bum bum bum, there arrives the triumvirate fleet. We heard you needed a hand! And... I guess, I guess I should mention that that com droid apparently is a really powerful com droid or they somehow managed to relay a communication because you may recall between them being found in the water and being pulled up onto AG's ship, there's the scene in which Yalta and Gar and them are discussing with Empress Fell about this whole idea of we need to help Dak and they reference in that Yaltaval references that the information about what's going on on DAC came from Jow. So apparently the communication droid either relays a signal to AG's ship that then gets relayed on to the Triumvirate, or that communications droid has some serious reach, because he's managed to let them know all the way back, you know, we hear you needed some help, apparently so, thanks to the comm droid.
1: Yeah. Because why do we need that array in the first place when this comm droid can do it all? <laughs> I also I like, though, uh, how Ticken, uh, you see his kind of betrayal at Darth uh, Luft. Yeah, when well, he comes up to Darth Luft, he's like, So, you see, sir, I was never part of any conspiracy. But I was thinking, if I brought you this information, maybe you'd release my son to him? That's one possibility. And then, of course, it goes down to Zhao and Anya down below, and you see the window up above. You can see and flying, and he crashed down. And that's and They've killed him! And, of course, you know, Dart Tuff looks out, there he is! And that, that's what ignites the entire battle. Which, you know, again, I, I, I'm i fine with the paneling and the pacing of everything with this. That's working for me. It's going. We've definitely crossed a threshold. I've gone to I can't stand this to, okay, this is getting better, and I'm, I'm liking where we're going. You know, and when Darth Luff drops down, kill them all. They're expendable. And then execute their families. I I, I like that because that, again, gets back to the cruelness of the Sith and what they're up to. So, I mean, that's working. The space battle, it's all fast and tense and all the action going on there. Uh, so I'm, you know, no problems with this. This is fine for me. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, up until this point, I was kind of like, oh man, is this series ever going to get better? And at this point, you know, with the actions of of Stasi and, and now we've got Val and them doing what they're doing, the fleet arriving, I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe we can salvage this. Maybe there is some potential to this.
0: Yeah, they're finally getting into the action, but we still have no reason to believe the action matters all that much. Really, with this issue it kind of felt like it was just the end of, yeah, you know, another story. It's not going to go much further. Really, the one big thing this manages to do is it raises Anya's visibility level leading into what winds up happening in the next arc. That's about it in a lot of well, ways. Well,
1: and we we know that the Sith have a fleet that they built. I mean, I thought that was like a big reveal. I mean, But do they have know-
0: a fleet? I mean, because...
1: Well, in the I scenes, are they
0: going dest- to destroy it, though? I mean, now that by the end of this issue, they've taken the ring, the Sith shouldn't have that fleet anymore, unless they true. all escape.
1: They're, true, there is that. By the time we're done, yes, what you're saying. But, I mean, up until then, there's that premise of, oh, my God, they've got a huge fleet being built. I mean, so there's... That peril is there, at least. I, and, and I felt like that peril before this last issue wasn't there at all. It was like, okay, yeah, you've had a vision of Darth Red chopping up the Empress, but beyond that... He's doing a lot of good things for the galaxy, man. Give him kudos.
0: Oh my god, previously unheard of, Darth Goat has a fleet. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will say, though, I do think maybe there's an inside joke coming. With the old droid, and you may raise a good point. Why do you need the Carreras array and everything if the Com droid can reach all the way to freaking Coruscant by itself? But it strikes me, maybe the droid's name is ATNT. Reach out and touch someone. Anybody? AT&T? It took me a second. I'm like, AT&T? He's got long-distance programming. Don't worry. It's all free, or at least it's nights and weekends. All right, so we move into five, and five is pretty – or part five, issue number ten. It's pretty much the action piece here. It's the final part of Return of the Jedi slash any other Star Wars film. It is the combat situation, and they do divide it up because – We've got Anya up in space with AG and we've got what's going on back on the ring itself. So it's nicely divided. You've even got kind of that dynamic like Return of the Jedi going in that in Return of the Jedi we were following the specifics of, you know, Lando in the Millennium Falcon and Wedge in his X-Wing and such. But then we were at times pulling back to see the full command of the fleet going back to Home 1 with Akbar. Here we've got Anya's ship and what they're doing, or I guess AG's ship and what they're doing, but we do at times pull back to see the command center of the flagship with Garstazi and Yaltaval aboard. So it plays out in that sense in a very Star Wars kind of way.
1: Did you notice, though, uh, how the last page of the last issue and the first page of this is kind of like a before and after? You got the one shot of the fleet coming in, and then when you go into this, the fleet's diving into the planet. I, that was kind of cool. I just now noticed that I'm like, oh, it's kind of moving the action along.
0: Mm-hmm. So they're on their way. We jump to the interior of the station, or of the shipyards, the orbital shipyards, and we're at the point where Zhao has been battling against Luft, and now is, it appears he's at Luft's mercy. And I love the tactic that they use. It actually winds up breaking up that fight just for a moment, just so that we can figure out what the heck is going on. But among the things that were brought, among the ships that were brought by Stasi, there's a tanker that docks. I'm like, tanker? What? It's the freaking Mon Calamari shipyards of Dak, right? We're talking about Quarren and Moncala, or Mon Calamari. They are aquatic species. And in theory, most, if not all, of the slaves are Mon Calamari and Quarren drawn back to their homeworld and then enslaved. At least that's what we've seen so far. So, barring a few slaves of other species that might die, oops, their tactic <laughs> is to open up the airlock, basically, and flood the place. The tankers are full of freaking water! And they just start flooding the docking area, and in come the Imperial Knights in aquatic gear with breathers and everything. The Quarren and the Mon Calamari are gonna be fine, but all of these people working with Luft, most of which aren't aquatic, they're all screwed! I love the tactic that's used here. I don't know that I would have would have seen that coming in any Star Wars story. It's such an unusual tactic, and yet it makes perfect sense.
1: Well, see, and I missed that the tankers had docked. I thought that that was just water they had in the station backed off at first. I mean, oh, oh. now watching the wave come in, I'm, like, looking at those ships going, are those ships going to be okay, or are they just total that fleet?
0: <laughs> so, again, we go back to our unnamed comm droid at and who manages to escape, and we get that, oh, oh, we're setting up something for later. Let's remind folks that when exposed to the vacuum of space, water will freeze, because as he makes it out of a hatch into space, this is a very industrious little comm droid, the water that is pulled out into space through that hatch behind him immediately freezes. Is an ice plume avoided? Clear of station. Like, oh, interesting. Maybe there'll be something to this whole ice thing. We wind up, again, sticking around on the inside. There are some deaths that wind up occurring here. It's not like, oh, they've shown up and everybody's going to be okay. That would have been a little bit too pat of an ending. If you show up on a giant space station full of a bunch of prisoners, surely some of the prisoners are going to be killed by the bad guys before you can rescue them. And we get sort of a scene here that had me going, wow, I can't believe they actually did it. That was kind of dark, not counting the artwork, where a couple of the people working for Luft put on their own atmospheric suits with some jetpacks and launch out of a hold where family members of some of the slaves are being held basically uh, to keep the others in line. And that entire thing is not totally flooded yet. They just take off and you see the rush of water coming out. The assumption, I would say, that at least some of them had to have died in that. Even if some of them managed to to save themselves. And I believe some of them do because we see some family reunions later. It certainly seems to me that at least some should have either been sucked into space or die when it all freezes over because they are standing in water. Did you get the sense that that was kind of a dark move that was happening there? I mean, we see some of them start to get sucked out. But at least that initial opening of the door itself should have wound up killing some.
1: I, I'm with you there. There was loss of light. I like, though, the interaction between the two mercenaries because it gave me that sense of, you, you know, bounty hunters, we don't need that kind of scum. You know, it, that, that whole aspect of these guys are just guns for hired. You know, and the water comes rushing. Water! It's been so long, says one of the corn and the Mal'kari. And then you've got the bounty guys. Something tells me we ain't getting paid anymore. And it ain't all fight. And they start putting on their stuff, and they start, you know, walking towards the bay door. And all the Moncal and the corn are like, "What are they doing?" And then when the door opens, you're you're right. I mean, half of it doesn't even have the water through it. The next scene, you see the water swishing everyone. Somebody had the controls. Close the door. I mean, even in that panel, you can see there's at least two people have already flown out. Uh, and then in the next one, when you see the you know, from Anya in the cockpit, you can see the ice from a distance. Then moving forward, there's like one body out, maybe two in the one in the ice. I mean, obviously they lost some people, you know, those monsters open the space doors on them. We've got to do something. And I remember thinking at this point, like, you know, they're screwed because that ice has blocked the door open. So, I mean, like he said, there wasn't enough in there to completely plug it. So the oxygen and everything being sucked out with it, too. So, yeah, it's a definite dark moment there. And the fact that those two mercenaries, you know, they're just like, well, we're not getting paid. So forget it. I don't even care if we kill these people. Let's just get out of here.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that it's kind of an odd way that it's set up. The water is coming out and it's freezing and we see people being pulled out and whatnot. So definite loss of life, as you were saying and then they said you know we've got to do something so they're in the ship above the spot where this the door's not closing essentially they opened up the door to space and took off now the people are dying are about to die they need to close the door back up and we see the door basically freeze is that you know the ice plugged the hole the ice finally gets to a point where the water rushing out covers the entire thing it plugs the hole with ice but it's not going to hold for very long they still need to be able to close the actual doors. So Anya and Salk, who are aboard AG's ship, right, go out of basically one of the doorways, hatches, whatever, on AG's ship and we see them drop down into the water to go in there to help and swim to the door controls that are frozen over and they can't get them to activate from the inside. And it's a cool image, albeit again kind of a muddy image, where Salk is swimming underneath and behind you can see the Mon Calamari I guess that was helping them but then you also, uh, Lewin, and then you also see Anya go down into the water and she's got kind of her arms crossed, her legs pointed, She just like shoom straight down into the water like diving off a diving board with your body perfectly straight. My question is, (laughs) how'd they do it? Yeah, how do they get in that water? (laughs) If the ice has already plugged the hole, how in the hell did they get into the water in this scene? They drop out of a, I mean Did they land the ship on the station and open up a hatch and there happened to be a hatch above, you know, like in the ceiling of that hold that everybody was in? There's no logical way, unless you start adding stuff to the story, because again, it's not on the page, in order to make sense of how they got inside the water, inside the bay that is frozen shut in the first place.
1: Unless maybe when we see IG's ship on that last page... Maybe it's not hovering over the base. Maybe it's parked on the base and the door that AG is lifting is not in his ship, but it's in a chamber that's plugged over that and that's actually the hatch for the station. If it's yeah, parked I mean, that's, th- that's where parked, we have to go out there.
0: <laughs> if it is parked on the base, that is drawn really, really poorly. <laughs> I know, got to there there go is out. No, the angles aren't even right on that. If it's parked on it, then it's parked tilted as if one of its landing gears is broken. It, it does not look like it. And the level of detail to the ship versus to what it's landed on is so different that it looks like they're meant to be things. One's in focus in front and one's further back and out of focus. I, I'm not buying that he's supposed to have been landed there. I'm assuming it happened between panels. But oh, however, yeah. they, however they get into the water, skipping over Jal here for a second, it winds up being that droid. As A.G. is chased off by pirates and such, it is the droid that happened to have gotten out earlier who's conveniently in place to swing around to the outside controls on that door and shut them just in time to save everybody. Again, actions of convenient unnamed comm droid are convenient. But at least it ends that peril. It really felt like there was real peril there momentarily.
1: Yeah. Well, and another thing that I question is like, OK, if Anya and them come in from in deeper where the water is still water, you know, and then they swim all the way up to where the ice is blocked. We can't get out of here. We can't close. The- Why not just tell them all to go through the hatch that you just went exactly.
0: through? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, so going back to Zhao Zhao Assam, as the battle is going on between the pirates and the Imperial Knights and such, We wind up finding Zhao back up against Luft. He's not going to leave Luft alone. Yeah, there's been some things happening with the water and some parts of the structure of the station are now in trouble and whatnot here, but he's not just going to allow him to get away. So they are dueling here, but now it's sort of back into a one-on-one even match, or at least it seems like an even match, as opposed to him being at Luft's mercy as we saw before the water started coming in. So the water did serve to break it up, but they are uh, back in... Combat. And as they're fighting there, I mean, really, Luft seems to have the advantage here. But as he he basically he's able to push, well, amid the fighting and whatnot, Zhao gets pushed back, and Luft is throwing stuff at him with the force. He's able to cut some of them apart before they get to him, but at least one is able to hit him and knock him down into the water with this heavy freaking thing on top of him and his lightsaber out of reach underwater a couple of imperial knights pop up and attack who have no chance of actually beating luft because they're just trainees but somehow in that matter of seconds jow is able to retrieve his lightsaber underwater and get that big old thing off of him i guess moving it to the side because he certainly doesn't throw it out of the water because we don't see it And he pops up out of the water, back up onto the catwalk, unseen, behind Luft, and stabs Luft through the chest, killing him. And says, you know, not much sport in this after all. Unfortunate, says Luft to the trainees. And then he gets stabbed. Thank you for distracting him, says Zhao. So Luft is taken out, but man, Zhao got out of that pretty quickly. Again, another one of those... They're telling the story so quickly, it seems like certain things feel like they're left out. How did he get that gigantic thing that should have crushed him off of him to get up there? Oh, we just kind of have to assume he just used the Force and did something with it because he shows up just fine.
1: Yeah, that one, and then going back you know, to the page right after Anya says, The doors are closed! We can't open the doors! Y- you see what looks to be Salk and, and another corn running, and the guy's chasing him. He's like, Blasted Fish! And the ramp that they're running on has got a big open spot and then they jump into the water and there's troopers. It looks like they pop up out of water and start shooting. And then you've got somebody hanging on the side of a, of a ramp. That's like at a weird angle and a hand comes out. What? And then next thing you know, obviously he got pulled underwater by one of the Mon Cal or the corn, but then you go to another scene and you see people running by the Imperial Knights. And then it's like, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's drawn so much in the same like the hangar bay looks the same in this hangar as it did the other one. So it left you with the feeling like, are these on the same catwalk? And now suddenly it's all together. Now the, mm-hmm. the night's going to cut it in half. Like, and then, and then you get to where you're at. It's, there's a lot of that in these last six pages, I would say where the action is so much and they're doing that whole, you know, okay, we're over here with this character. Now we're over here with this character. Now we're over here with this character. The, the timing seems to kind of get off in the perspective of what's going on from the timing gets thrown off to the point where the reader it's like, what the hell's going on? Because <laughs> this is one that I, I've reread it a couple times now, and I still don't quite understand the pacing. I mean, I get the gist of the story, but the pacing of what was going on when throws me off. And that's one of those where, where I really got to lean on my suspension of disbelief.
0: It doesn't help that the backgrounds all tend to look the same. There's a lot of dark colors used that makes it hard to see certain things, and pretty much all the Mon Calamari and Korin look the same, minus a couple that have slightly different colorations. Um, oh, I was that's just
1: act- specious man. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. It's, it's all speciesist. You know, like, What's wrong with you? I do find it interesting that later on, when, once everything is said and done, Luft has been defeated, everybody's been freed, the station's going to be able to be fixed and whatnot. There's finally going to be a chance for the corn and the cows to really start to to rebuild in a lot of ways here. We find that Tikken, We actually saw earlier, I guess I jumped over it. Ticken went up and talked to uh, Darth Luft and wound up getting killed. As opposed to being rewarded with his son's freedom over everything. But we see the son, Tillin, swimming near Sauk and Lewin, the Mon that was helping them all. And he said, Aunt Lewin, when's dinner? And I went, Aunt Lewin? Lewin's female? <laughs> Did I miss something somewhere? Or was this just something never seen and we were supposed to assume this was a female character?
1: Well, wow, We must have been assuming this whole time. I, I thought the purple gave it away.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's it. See, that species is too.
1: (laughs) Well, that's Uh, I guess that's sexist species,
0: something like that. Again, to go back to the everything wrong with videos, that's racist. Which you'd have to see them to get it. He says it about it. But you do get the sense that there is hope for them, and Yalta and Zhao have a brief conversation, in which of course they both look like they're the same race again. They both look like they're equally black. Brown, whatever. They, they both look like they are supposed to have the same skin tone when that does not appear to be the case in the first arc or on the cover of the stuff from the first arc. But whatever, apparently, they have no idea how to draw or color this stuff effectively, as we've seen throughout. It's, everything is extra dark, including skin, apparently. But they have a moment in which, basically, you think that maybe they're going to reconcile here. And they sort of do, in a sense. But they don't all go back to Coruscant. You'll be returning to your duties now, I presume, Asialta? I can't. Not yet. You know what that means, don't you? Desertion is punishable by death. He's already deserted, so if he goes back, he's gonna gonna die. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you want to come back back and and do your duties?
1: It's death, man. That's your duty.
0: (laughs) Exactly. It's like, you want to come back now and die, or are you gonna be an a-hole and come back and die later? Jerk. Master Val, with all respect, I know my duty. Then why do you persist in this fool... My life means nothing compared to keeping the Empress safe. That is my first and most important duty. To do that, Darth Red must be stopped. I have foreseen it. Goodbye, Master Val. And they part ways. They're parting ways with him aboard Aegis' ship, so the team is back together again, as they were splitting up at the beginning of this arc, now they've been brought back together by circumstances. They're taking off and wondering what kind of, you know, paying jobs they might be able to somehow get in order to continue their quest and, you know, have a livelihood because now Anya can't go back to Coruscant and everything. She can't take that cushy little job. And they're contacted, actually, Jow specifically is contacted by Darth Red. Congratulations, Jow. You followed the trail I left for you with remarkable perseverance. You did a good job in eliminating Luft as well. Everybody knows Luft's name except for the reader until that opening. Thanks to you, my plan is now several steps closer to completion, whatever that plan might be. I eagerly await the chance to thank you in person. When I bring back the old ways, your place in the order will be secure. You may rely on that. And it turns out that, yes, Red was a part of all of this, But not in the way that Zhao thought. It wasn't that Red was orchestrating things on the ring and in charge of Darth Luft or working with Darth Luft. He wanted Darth Luft dead. And rather than doing it himself, as was the case with the Snivian way back at the beginning of this arc, the one with the hidden tattoos underneath what is supposed to be presumably fur, but in the Star Wars universe isn't supposed to be fur and everything, turns out that instead of taking him out himself, Zhao was manipulated into doing it. So what? We also liberated the ring and saved a bunch of Sock's people, says Anya. And as the story ends, after all that, I'm sure we can take down one arrogant Sith. And we get a little end down there at the corner. Mm -hmm. Would have been nice if along with that end, since that is a convention many comic books have gotten away from. If maybe they would go back to an earlier convention that the Star Wars comics have tended to get away from, which would be something like, as you were saying, something like a meanwhile in Hangar 2... Or something in little boxes that would have made it easier to follow some of the action sequences uh, in this particular issue. But certainly, mm. in this sense, once you get through the entire arc, it feels like a Star Wars film in some respects. Not as good, visually disappointing. But here's the first part of the quest. We introduce our characters. They make their way to find out what they need. Now our characters who are split are all heading back to the same place. Now that they're back to the same place, they're in trouble. They're reunited. Boom, big battle, everything ends, Iris out.
1: I really liked the ending. The last page especially brought it up for me. I mean, in the levels of enjoyment. When Zhao was like, how did he, what did he, he wanted Love Dead? We've been playing into Red's hands the whole time? To me, like, that for that character especially is deep. I mean, because he's already been feeling like Red's been grooming him. And now you just found out, oh, by the way, you passed test one. Thank you. Here's a pat on the head. (laughs) Like, whoa, that was, like, dude, he thought he was doing the right thing. And he's totally helping the Sith out. Holy Sith. That got me super excited. I'm like, yes, you know, we're going to go into some good stuff next. Not so much. But... I was excited. You know, that last page really brought my excitement levels up, which is classic Star Wars for me in that regard. You know, I mean, anytime you have something quick and you're like, <gasps> you know, that's that's the joy of the Star Wars moment. I mean, whether it, it be just, you know, oh, hey, there's some mist. And what's that coming out of the mist and the music? And, you know, those little moments are what capture you. And that when Jow is like, how did he, what did the and, and when he's sitting there and it's dawning on him that realization you know the level of oh crap that that puts Jao in it's like dude you're pretty much death sentenced yourself now by leaving to do this and now you're finding out that while you're doing what you think is right you're also doing exactly what the guy you're trying to stop wants and that has to make you pause and take note of everything you're doing i mean it's just got to
0: it would have been nice if there had been just a, a, a one-liner in there, maybe even from Sauk. Ha <laughs> ha, knight, you're a pawn! Get it? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> or, or we're at at the end, fooled you. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. You got played. I don't know, I mean, this is an arc that, like I said, it's kind of a meh arc by itself. Yes, it moves along and answers the question, what about Dak now? Where do the characters go now that we've introduced them? But I think without the broader context of reading the next two arcs, this is going to fall flat for a lot of people. Fortunately, the next arcs do ramp this up somewhat, and by the time we get to Empire of One, it feels like all these arcs had an actual freaking purpose. And some of the characterizations, like Mara CFL being a COMPLETE rhymes with witch, finally start to be explained. Why is she acting the way she is, where it seems like she is nothing like the person that we met back in the original Legacy series? In the grand scheme of things, this arc is uplifted in the way that I think a lot of readers will look at it. Taken as a whole by itself, the whole arc, but by itself in the sense of just this arc, not the rest of the series, it just kind of goes nyeh. And I would say, though, that it seems like what they're trying to do with Red here is to build him up as this massive Sith mastermind menace. He is the new answer to Palpatine. He is the schemer manipulating everything behind the scenes. See, ooh, he's so Sithy. We don't know enough about him yet. Haven't seen him enough yet. Haven't seen him do things that were particularly conniving enough yet. And frankly, haven't been able to see anything that makes him look strong in relation to all the Sith we just saw in the last few years of storytelling with people like Darth Krayt and Darth Weirlock to still make him feel as though he's really that much of a threat. For some reason, no matter how much they make Red out to be a threat, and even in Empire of One, though it is finally growing, the menace is growing somewhat now that we know more about him, but it kind of feels like Legacy Volume 1 was the Major Leagues. Legacy Volume 1 was the Atlanta Braves. (laughs) Here, it's the second stringer. It's Minor League. It's the Gwinnett Braves. Okay, these are not the characters we want to necessarily see. These are the second stringers. Anya is a second stringer to Cade. Salk and A.G. are second stringers to Jiraiya and Delia Blue. We're seeing this new triumvirate government, which is second string to seeing the coolness of the Jedi Order with the Hidden Temple and all the craziness with the two different empires and everything. And Red is a second string wannabe Darth Crate slash Palpatine. At some point, he really needs his menace ratcheted up, or this entire series will feel like it is not just volume two, but level two Mm. second rate.
1: I can agree with that 100%. I mean, knowing what I know from the next arc and moving forward, I would say Red kind of gives me a Punisher feel, which I've asked for for a Jedi, but seeing it with a Sith is kind of interesting. It actually makes more sense with a Sith. You know, him and Zhao's story, from the start, I think theirs is the more interesting story. Anya Solo, she could be anybody. I mean, you know, the fact that... I just feel like they're riding on the coattails of the name Solo. They haven't even told us exactly how... She is a Solo, aside from, well, oh, she's just a Solo. Like, okay, but Alana Solo wouldn't have kept the Solo last name. So, But yeah, when it gets to the Sith side of things, well, that's, I, that's if, where the story's
0: at. If I can interject here, it kind of seems like they're playing that in a lot of ways. It's not just, we're supposed to care about Anya because, well, she's a Solo. We're supposed to care about Antares Draco, Garstasi, Kuk crook Fell because, well, see, we know them from Legacy. Even mm-hmm. Sauk. We're supposed to care about Sauk because he's a Mon Calamari. We've been given almost no reason whatsoever in this entire storyline, and won't until the next arc, to really care about any of these people. Yeah. Not as people, but as positions. As knight, pawn, bishop, queen, king. That's the piece in the story that they might be, but when do we actually start giving a crap about them as individuals? At least not until the next arc. And even then... Again, spoiler alert, in the next arc, when we do find out the reason behind them wanting Anya, it's called Wanted Anya Solo, and a little bit more about Anya's background, the big villain of the piece that ties it all together will not get a name. Again.
1: Yeah, that's always like, wait, what? I mean, like Kukruk. You know, I'm a huge Kukruk fan, but Kukruk has served nothing. I mean, the only reason he is here is to be like, hey, look, see, Legacy Volume Two. It it follows Legacy Volume One. Here's characters, you know. Uh, okay, doing nothing, but yeah, right on.
0: Yeah, he's sort of the window dressing. That's not to say that necessarily every character needs to carry over, every situation needs to carry over, but you can't rely on just the carrying over to be what carries your story. If we get Star Wars Episode Seven and it completely falls flat story-wise, the fact that it's another new Star Wars movie and the fact that it's gonna probably have some, well definitely gonna have some characters and ships and stuff like that that reference back to the previous films, that is not necessarily gonna be enough to save it. Will it make a ton of money? Absolutely, just like this comic series is selling issues. But that doesn't make it necessarily a good story. It doesn't make it a good exercise in storytelling. I'm really hoping that when we do, as you said, get the last issues of this series, when we have all the arcs that can look at this as a gigantic hole, that instead of this being a gigantic hole without the W, that it's just a pit and a complete waste of time that, again, brings down the legacy name, like Crusade with Babylon 5. That instead what we get is something where it turns out this has been masterfully pieced together, John Jackson Miller style, we just didn't see it till it all came together at the end, and how awesome is it, and now we gotta go back and reread it and pick up all these hints. Kind of I'm not seeing it. I, I hope, but I'm not holding out much of the hope.
1: Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Uh, overall, you know, I'm with you. If if I look at this as just an arc by itself, I would say don't even bother. Um, you know, if you're going to commit to the legacy series, and kind of like at this point, you know, with Legends being what it is, I think that's kind of the way you need to look at these projects. You know, stop looking at them as arcs, start looking at them as at series. You know, read the whole series. Boom, one through 50, one through this, one through that. In that regard, I, I think this is one of those slow but needed parts. At least I'm hoping on the needed aspect. I mean, it, it did serve a lot of things to kind of raise the stakes, but at the same time, it also quelled those. At the same time, so I would say this one's probably a run of the mill for me. I'd, I, you know, if I was to give it a one through ten, I'd say probably four and a half, I'm just shy of half. <laughs> it was too dark, you know. I, I, I'm not, you know, we've said it, you've heard it, you know how we feel on the darkest smudgy, so that's say, why it's a four and a half.
0: I would say story wise, it's probably like a. Yeah, like a five or a six. Art-wise, it's like a two. Mm, yeah. uh, but if, if we could separate out and divorce the art from it, I know there's probably going to be people who are going <laughs> to write in and say, man, you guys are crapping on the art again. Who cares about the art? It's about the story. Well, in a comic book, the art helps tell the story. That's part of the way the medium works. But if we were to be able to divorce the two, separate them out, the artwork brings it down average-wise. If I were to put it as a whole, I would say, yeah, we're probably looking at like a four or so. But if you take out the art and you just focus in on the story and what it does to serve the greater whole of Legacy Volume 2, yeah, you're probably looking at like a 5 or a 6. It's not a bad series per se. It's got elements that drag it down that didn't need to be there, and it could have been more. It's it's another example of not meeting expectations. Or I guess if not meeting expectations, because we didn't expect a whole lot of it as soon as we saw the preview art of this one, then it's not living up to its potential in that sense. And granted, it's got a lot To live up to. Giant shoes to fill after Legacy Volume 1. It was destined almost to be a disappointment in that respect. But it could be better than it is. It just hasn't been.
1: No, I I think you're dead on there. You know, if you divorce the art, 6 is about right. You know, give or take what we're going to get in the end. That could come up to a 7, maybe drop down to a 5 again. Now moving into covers. Issue 6, we've got the schniven, whatever he is, uh, with Darth Red behind him. This one's weird, you know, it's got the dark theme of what you're going to see on the inside, so I like the fact that it actually reflects what you see. It says Sith versus Sith, and you only know that the Slivan's a-, a Sith because he's got Sith eyes and he's got some Force lightning like he's like charging up his drink for some reason. Uh, but Darth Red's got a very uh, Darth Vader-like look, too. I mean, they really accentuated his armor and stuff and pointed out the armor, which isn't even as big as what it is on the cover. Issue seven. I actually liked issue seven. That was one that, I don't know, it gave me a use and vong feel, which for a minute there, I thought like they were going to find a way to tie in the use and vong with everything. The jellyfish that we see in the issue have a more menacing look to them. They look like they got eyes and it looks like the tentacles are part of their mouth. Uh, and it's all descent into danger, you know, and it's got Zhao and Anya both in like this. Oh, we're about to be attacked pose. Uh, I would say eight is probably one of my more favorite ones. Uh, you know, it's got Raiders from the Ring and Anya is like, I don't know, it looks like she's kind of like using her blaster as a weapon. Uh, like she's punching with it, cause like her hand looks like she's swinging and she just struck the guy in the face or something. But the blaster's at a weird angle, like <laughs> like she must have used it for a club or something. And they're like in the hangar and it looks like the hangers closed with glass for once. I don't know why there. Maybe that's just to illustrate the fact that it's a window out into space and the battle's going on behind it. Uh, the coloring's kind of like black and white, but it does have some red tones. But I like the look of it. Nine. Again, I'd say the last few covers in these, I like them all. They're all really enjoyable. Nine, I really like, though. It, it captures the peril that you get into. You know, it's the, the escape pod sinking. And it says, sinking in a poison sea. One drop is all it takes to kill you on a solo. That was a little much. But I like the fact that, you know, you got all the bones and stuff on the floor and Dead bodies floating around and stuff, and the glass on the pod is cracking and Anya's kind of like pushed her hand up against so it, like, oh no, don't crack. You know, ten though, I-, I think that there's a special part of me that is connected to ten. It reminds me of a similar issue that we got in Legacy Volume One with I believe Cade Skywalker floating up through a tube. Uh this one you got an Imperial Knight in his armor, and he's got some stormtroopers floating up, and it like, uh, you know, almost gives you like the feeling like they're coming in with the water as it's flooding into the thing. Like everything seems to be like the water in the tube looks like it's going hyperspace. So it kind of feel like, you know, like they blasting in with it. I don't know. It gives you that cool charge and Imperial lights to the rescue. Uh, That one was probably my favorite of them with the one with Anya and the escape pod being my second favorite. The first one being my least favorite. What about you, Nate?
0: They're all all right. I mean, none of them really jump out at me and say, this is great. It's funny looking at issue number six. A, it's really, really dark, and it's kind of hard to see some things on the cover, which was surprisingly presaging what we got inside the comic. It's interesting. That I look at Darth Red on that cover uh, with his lightsaber ignited, and presumably it can be heard, and the light can be seen by the Snivian who's there. But one, I look at Red, and the way he's drawn there, especially the way the shadows come together with his faceplate and everything, it makes me think, you know, dead or alive, you are coming with me. You know, it, it makes me think that it's freaking Robocop standing behind him, because it looks a <laughs> yeah. lot more cybernetic than, than we get with Red. The Snivian, he's got the uh, force lightning forming in his hand, but he's still faced the opposite direction, which it means either he knows Red's behind him and he's getting ready to attack, or because of the way that it's drawn, he's about to heat up his drink. It looks like he's about to just fry the glass in his hand. Uh, But my first thought on seeing this was, oh my god, Red's going to kill Griff! (laughs) Of course, it's not Griff. Although Griff would be a good example of a Snivian who was also, they're not supposed to have full body hair, but was drawn in such a way that it certainly looked like it. So maybe it's one of these things where they're going to eventually say there are different types of Snivians out there. They're supposed to just have the thick skin and can have actual hair on top of their heads. Um, But certainly Marn hieroglyph/ slash Griff was drawn as if he was totally furry Chewbacca style. Maybe yeah. maybe that's where they were getting it from. The second cover just ties into that weird, weird, creepy planet. Makes it look like a lot creepier of a, of a situation than they actually find themselves in. Makes it seem like it's gonna be like a horror story or something when it's not. But it you know, it works well enough. Still, lots of dark areas on the cover. Eight Anya on the cover whooping up on the grands again. Yeah, I think you're right. I think she must have pistol whipped him, but she must suck at pistol whipping because it looks like she must have hit him with the barrel of the gun. Like she smacked him with the tip where the blaster bolt is supposed to come out, and that's why her arm is swinging the way that it is. Otherwise, the position doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The creepiness of being down in the water in the escape pod and everything is pretty cool for number nine, although... The fact that it is all that washed-out blue except for a little bit of it I think would make this a little bit less striking if someone was flipping through the comic racks than it probably should be because it's a cool concept for an image, but it is all pretty much just blue and black. And then, yeah, the one for number 10 where the Imperial Knights are coming to the rescue, yeah, it works. Begs the question of, I mean, I guess these guys all have waterproof their lightsabers as... Uh, We know has been an issue in some Star Wars stories because if they really are all in water here as they're all flowing out, notice that the one in the front is carrying an ignited lightsaber. Thinking back to the way that this battle took place, come to think of it, we know that it's Imperial Knights in the red aquatic armor fighting against the Sith. Were there? I mean, I guess they would have had to have been, but I guess I wasn't really paying that much attention to it, surprisingly. Were there stormtroopers as part of the invading force, or was this all just Imperial Knight trainees because... Notice that on the cover, it's an Imperial Knight in the front, but those are stormtroopers behind him, not Imperial Knights.
1: Yeah, I don't remember actually seeing any troopers inside the cover. I mean, but then again, they they could have been there. They could have just been black.
0: (laughs) When we see them after the battle, like in the hangar, I just wonder if if they really took much part in the battle itself. Not that it matters, because apparently so much stuff can happen off-panel in this series that they could have had an entire huge climactic battle, and we never would have known about it except somebody maybe dropping a hint that it happened in a future issue yeah yeah what was it he dispatched them yeah it was really something to see
1: yeah exactly now that about wraps up this episode of star wars beyond the films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us we ponder on sharing our fandom remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the star wars report website second airborne division at www.starwarsreport.com episodes are also available on zoom stitcher and on itunes which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it you can also find links to our episodes on both our twitter and our facebook pages at sw beyond films or just type in stars beyond the films in the search bar hey but no matter how you get there be sure to like our facebook page it's one of the best ways to interact with us it's our own home one if you will not only can you post comments to us about the show we love interacting with you fellow fans so if you have any star wars and or legends questions or you just want to comment about a past episode fire off you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com now lastly before we go we wanted to mention to you our audible trial if you go to Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the Force be with you.
0: And don't quote us the odds. An Empire of One will give us a conclusion that ties it all together for Legacy Volume Two.
1: Or if the new canon states that all lightsabers work underwater. Because here we go on another adventure beyond the films.
0: Uh, oh, sorry. I just it was killing me. <laughs> They're like, I'm like, do I unmute before I burp or do I not? And I'm I like, no, I'm cool. I'm good. Unmute. <laughs> okay then. Um <laughs> is that <what> is? <laughs> Which has apparently been picked up by Salk and AG37. Last time we uh, Pam!